this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest annual call-in show 2021 edition. Anyway, uh, I think that's what we call it. It's Wednesday, December 29th, 2021. Happy New Year to one and all. I'm joined today by uh, Julia Turner, Deputy Managing Editor of the LA Times. Julia, hey. Hello, hello. Uh, you're greeting me from Los Angeles, a rainy Los Angeles? Yeah. Sunny this morning, but rainy this weekend, rainy this afternoon, supposedly. Well, rain in LA is always good, right? Almost always good? Always good. And of course, Dana Stevens is the film critic for Slate. Dana, uh, sunshine follows you everywhere. I don't even need to ask. <laughs> Dana, please, just one more time, your book and its pub date. Stephen, my book is Cameraman, Buster Keaton, The Dawn of Cinema and the Invention of the 20th Century. And the pub date is one twenty-five twenty-two, less than a month away now. Okay, before we move on, we should acknowledge that, uh, you know, in some ways, peerless Joan Didion, the great nonfiction and fiction writer, essayist, and just sort of moral presence in American life, literary slash moral witness in American life for the last 40 plus years, 50 years, has died. And um, of course, Normally, we would be discussing her today at length. Uh, it almost feels like it requires a segment and a plus, or maybe even two segments, to discuss someone whose presence in all of our creative lives as writers is 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 so huge. Um, but this is the call-in show, so we'll be talking about Joan Didion, uh, presumably next show. Uh, okay, moving on. Let's let's listen to our first question. Hi, lovely Culture Gap Fest people. Uh, this is Mike Cluley, calling all the way from. London, England, uh, I'd love to know what work of art, uh, drawing, painting, or photograph would you love to own? What would you have hung in your lounge or dining room that you could just sit and stare at for hours on end? Uh, and uh, look forward to listening to the show later this week. Cheers. Bye. I have many answers to this, and I'm not sure any of them meets the profundity of the question, only one work of art. I There's a lot of photography that I admire. I would love to own a photograph of Edward Bertinsky, who makes these really beautiful portraits of um, sort of the post-industrial landscape and essentially the rapacity of human impact on the world, which why would I want that in my room? I living room, I don't know, but they're I think they touch on my interest in geology and my love for photography. And um I guess maybe they're the closest thing in the art world to looking out the window from a plane, which is one of my favorite activities as longtime listeners of the show know. Um I also think sculpture is maybe uh, a way to think for the answer because, you know, I, I hang things on the wall and, uh, you know, they're n- none of them is, um, liable to be in a museum instead, but like a, a, a wonderful 
Calder Mobile. I, I love mobiles. How cool it would be to have something that that took a little bit of different life and shape from different directions. Um, I'll also say an old family friend of ours is a painter um, whose work I've loved for years. And I have a couple small pieces of hers that I've collected over the years in my life. But um, one thing I did during the pandemic was purchase a painting of hers that I've loved forever. She did this series of just trees, beautiful trees, and she has an amazing color sense in the, in the 90s. And I, she still had one and I bought it and uh, soon it will hang on my wall. So I'm thrilled to own a Barbara Baum tree. Hmm. All right, uh, Julia, before we turn to Dana, can you say the name of the first artist again? Edward Bertinsky. I, yeah, I know the name, but I can't say I know his work, but I'm psyched to discover it. Dana, um, what about you? By the way, what a great, what a great question, right? Like what a heart of the matter question. Yeah, this is a great question. And I found it surprisingly hard to answer. I mean, some of my favorite images aren't necessarily things I would want to own and look at every day. You know, and living with something is very different from going to a museum to see it. So the very first thing I thought, because the the listener mentioned drawings, paintings, and photographs were things that I love in museums. But then I thought about how much I like seeing them in the museum. Like there's this Velasquez portrait that's in the in the Met, that's a, a, a painting of Juan de Pareja. It's a famous painting of this. I think he was an assistant, also a painter, an assistant of Velasquez. And it's this beautiful, I mean, the man is just so sexy and his gaze is so alive. And when you go there, you feel like you're in the presence of this person who lived hundreds of years ago. Uh, but I like seeing him in the museum. I wouldn't want to own Juan de Pareja. I like the idea that he's, he's in a place where I can go visit him. Um, so when I thought about things that I see in museums that I covet that I would actually like to have on my wall. I'm going to go big. I would like to have a medieval tapestry. I would love to own one of those huge pieces of textile art that's like, you know, that's like magical monsters against a sort of bluish green field with some sort of, you know, medieval people playing lutes or something like that. I love those pieces. (laughs) And they're really decorative. That's what they were for, right? I mean, they were for basically insulating big cold spaces and making a wall be sort of warm and cozy, like with wallpaper. And I could live with one of those and I feel like because it has lots of new things to discover it wouldn't be like staring at Wanda Pareja's face all day it would sort of you know invite you in to um to look at it as as part of the landscape so I guess I'm going with medieval tapestry guys I'm not sure I've ever shared this on the show I must have in all these years but um I wrote my undergraduate thesis about two seamstresses and part of how I did it was um all of their collected possessions were part of the fabric and textiles department at the RISD Museum. And I worked there one summer in the textiles department. And if you ever want to fall in love with the museum, like go behind the scenes in the textiles department. I was not allowed to touch any fabrics. I only sat at a computer and did data entry of of, um, uh, all of the different things that were bought from these two dressmakers out of their scratchy old handwriting. But behind me, the curators would had these like incredible collapsible files and they would just pull out like these extraordinary garments. They had like just a beautiful piece of linen from the Valley of the Kings. It was like thousands of years old and just looked like a beautiful, I don't know, little piece of linen that you could... Um, get from Martha Stewart or something. It, it, anyway, some, there's something about old fabric that is even more special than old paint somehow. Yeah, anyway, maybe maybe, maybe that, because it's answer. not made to last, right? There's so little fabric that has lasted. I don't know why, but yeah, like the Bayou Tapestry, which I've never seen in person, is one of my dream visits, you know, to go to Normandy and see that. 
I absolutely love old textile art. So thousand-year-old piece of linen, you know, you had me at hello. Mm. Okay. Well, I had uh, my brain cycled through all the obvious answers first. Like, of course, it's Cezanne Still Life or something from, uh, you know, Van Gogh, um, who I, I just can't ever... I can't ever perceive either one of them as as, as sort of cliche tastes. They, they seem original and alive to me every time in touch with something so deep about the phenomenal world. And uh, they got it onto the canvas via their touch. And I, I, I love them. But that's not my answer. My answer is, to do justice to this work of art, let me begin by saying, as in those wonderful dreams where your house turns out to have secret annexes that you begin to explore and um, wonderful recesses and rabbit warreny you know places and mysterious places. Um, uh, it, it, to do this work of art justice, I have something like that as kind of dream space attached to my existing house. Um, and, and you walk through a kind of breezeway or something and uh, into, it has to be a gigantic room with whitewashed brick walls in the middle of which are viewing sofas that can be made sociable to one another so you can exist with this work of art while you have cocktails and shoot the shit. I think there should also be a Danish soapstone wood-burning stove so it's an all-season house. <laughs> but otherwise, it's completely simple and Christian Markley's The Clock plays <gasps> Oh my time. God, always. jealous. You, that is um, so good. I wish I thought of it. you can sit and, uh, and uh, watch it. For those of you who, who don't remember, didn't hear our show and we talked about it, uh, uh, a... Um, it's a work of kind of conceptual slash avant-garde film that runs 24 hours. And what the artist did was was call the vast archives of existing film stock from moments in whatever kind of movie where a clock is shown. And then he correlated that with the actual 24-hour real clock. So this thing functions as a clock, right? And it, it brings you into a kind of dream space or dream consciousness in this alluring, like powerfully alluring way that no description of it can do justice to. It's until you're sitting there, it's not until you're sitting there that you become, I mean, uh, uh, totally ravished by it in some odd way and feel as though I hated the fact that I had to leave. There was no doubt in my mind that, but for like food and drink or, you know, occasional nourishment or bathroom breaks, I could have like filibustered for, you know, all 24 hours in some sense. And then very quickly, I'll say much more traditionally, I would love a weird, if I could have another one on the far, on the far wall or facing wall, uh, it would be, I would want something gigantic and lurid and weird that you could kind of lose yourself in and get overcome by every time you saw it. So um, I, I'm going to say Delacroix's The Death of Sardanapalus, which is just an astonishing painting. If you know it, sort of modern paintings emerging from its canvas as you watch it, you know, it, it sort of set the Paris salon on its ear with its, its weirdness and its formal weirdness. And, and I'll just quickly read from the Wikipedia. Uh, the main figural subject of the painting is Sardanapalus, a king willing to destroy all of his possessions, including people and luxurious goods, in a funerary pyre of gore and excess. Why not? It's not to love. <laughs> My hero. <laughs> Steve, before we move to the next question, I just have to say that I'm so jealous that you thought of Christian Marclay's The Clock, and those viewing conditions sound incredible, and that is that is what I would have chosen if I had chosen a modern work of art. That's a beautiful idea. And I agree. I've spent my days and morning since leaving the room of watching Christian Marclay's The Clock that I only got to watch, I don't know, maybe a total of four or five scattered hours out of the 24. 
wouldn't it be amazing? And maybe the sofas would all be pullouts, you know, so you could go to sleep. <laughs> and then you've suddenly, you know, when you have your bout of old man midnight insomnia, speaking for some on the panel, you know, 2 a.m. or something, you know, uh, there it is. You can see a part of it you may not have seen before. All right, shall we move on? Next question. What a great question. Thank you. Hello, Dana and Steve and Julia. This is James Callan from Camas, Washington, and I'm a longtime fan of the show. And I've got a question for the call-in, um, inspired by Dana's comment on a recent episode about how uh, Stephen Sondheim is a great artist that she was really introduced to by her daughter. I mean, obviously, she'd heard of him before, but it was her daughter that really got, a, got her into Sondheim. And my riff on that for all of you, since I know that you are all parents, what are the great cultural gifts that your children have given you. Um, thanks for the show. Have a great year, and I appreciate all that you do. Well, listeners of the show will be all too familiar with my answer, which is that for long hours of driving them here and hither and non or whatever, here and there, um, they played me their music, which is just such a great reversal as they start to emerge as their own people. You know, you, you indoctrinate them to Bob Dylan or whomever when they're little, and then they're like, they throw it back in your face and say, actually, here's what's cool to us. And uh, mostly for them, it was the great singer-songwriter resurgence It's that's been led almost exclusively by very young women, uh, Laura Marling, Phoebe Bridgers, Claro, Girl in Red, on and on. I mean, there are just so many and so many truly, truly great ones. And um, that came via them. I mean, I'd probably find some of it. It's indie rock, basically. But still, it's it's. I see how deeply this music touches them and shapes them in ways that things did when I was in seventh, eighth, ninth grade. And that's that's very powerful. Oh, that's a good one, Steve. And that I know has been a really vibrant part of your life because I feel like your endorsements, there's a running theme in your endorsements, which is female singer-songwriters that you listen to with your daughters in the car. I mean, there needs to be a playlist of, of, all, of all that music. You should make one. I would totally oh, happy listen to, to it. Oh, yeah. So mine, I guess I've already answered in the inspiration for the question. And thank you for the question, James, by the way. I recognize James from many exchanges over the years. I know he's a longtime listener. Uh, Stephen Sondheim is certainly one. As my daughter has become a theater geek, I mean, a really hardcore theater nerd, I've learned a lot from her about, I mean, I don't think that I would know nearly as much about contemporary Broadway as I do, which is still not that much, uh, if not for her having gone on these these deep dives. And after Sondheim died, that was quite impressive to me. It wasn't just like she knew who he was. I mean, she was into the deep cuts and, you know, had watched live all of these those tribute concerts to him for his 80th and 90th birthdays and, you know, had really been dedicated. And it was wonderful to discover that through her. Uh, another that I think I mentioned at the time, along with talking about Sondheim, is Lady Gaga. I mean, I obviously mm -hmm. would be aware of her. I'm sure that I would be humming along with her pop hits. But, you know, my daughter knows her deep dives and, you know, is learning her songs on acoustic guitar. And just that's really one of her performing idols. And I think that I probably would not appreciate you know, the, the breadth of Lady Gaga's talent, if not for my daughter. So that's great. And we stand her together and plan to see her live at some opportunity in the future. Uh, some of the others, I think, are our kid culture that my kid introduced me to. I mean, things that she loved that were either not around when I was a child or I wasn't into them when I was a child. And one of them is something that I've written about extensively on, uh, on, on Slate, which is Phineas and Ferb, the great uh, cartoon, which I guess ended at about 
five or six years ago or so, which was this thing that I used to see my daughter watching and kind of wander in and out of the room thinking, well, she's happy. I'm glad she has a cartoon to watch. And there was one day when I was walking through, I think I wrote on Slate about the particular joke that it was. I walked through and realized that was a really good joke. And I somehow sat down slowly and started watching it with her. And pretty soon we were watching our way entirely through Phineas and Ferb. We still quote it nearly every day. It's one of the one of the best kids cartoons I've encountered as an adult. And I highly recommend it to anybody who wants to do a, a complete watch through. It's also something that by its nature, as you'll see if you start watching, starts afresh every single time, cleans the slate for every episode. So it does not matter at all if you know the universe. But the more you know the universe, the more you laugh at the joke. So Phineas and Ferb is definitely one. And another is, and maybe, Julia, your kids, your boys are about the right age for this now, is Sideways Stories from Wayside School by Lewis Satchar. Do either of you know this series of books? Oh, they're these these great, I don't know how to describe them, just these very off-kilter stories about this crazy school where once you walk into the doors of the school, the laws of physics no longer quite apply and anything can happen. So like people's identities can collapse and it's hard to describe exactly, but it has a little bit of a... It's a little bit like the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series for kids in the sense that, you know, it's it's there are these kind of puzzles and, uh, you know, these disconcerting events that happen within the school. But there's also great characters. The teachers are wonderful characters. It's just a weird, funny world. I think there's four or five books by Lewis Sachar. The first one is called Sideways Stories from Wayside School. Oh, my God. I've got to try those because right now we are deeply stuck in the Rick Reardon verse. Uh, <laughs> he's the author of the Percy Jackson books, which... Um, have a great concept, which is uh, that all the Greek gods are still alive and, and uh, you know, battling over the world and whatever. There's summer camps and demigods. And I, you know, it's been, in, in, it's been great at getting the boys interested in myths and history and fueled us through a trip to the Getty Villa here in L.A., but they're just not that well-written or interesting you know reading all of harry potter with the boys which i had already read was much more fun than these i would say um yeah i mean i your endorsements make me look forward to my boys getting older and having more independent grappling with pop culture um i would say the biggest discovery of their youth which i've talked about on the show has been re-watching uh the old adam west batmans and then reading the batman 66 comics that are sort of based in that world and just realizing that it was always a camp joke and a pretty funny one at that (laughs) like they're just I have great admiration for that show which I think I watched in reruns probably alongside I Love Lucy um, when I was a kid and I just thought like oh old culture was dumb and made jokes that were dumb (laughs) I didn't realize that it was like a bunch of very funny grown-ups making very funny show in the 60s. So, um, yeah, that's my discovery thus far. Good. So, we, uh, next question. Cue it up. Hi. My mom was a Slate Culture Gab Fest super fan and a parasocial friend of Dana's. She passed away this year from pancreatic cancer. I was wondering if you guys had any cultural recommendations for dealing with grief. Love the show. Thanks so much. Well, First of all, I'm really sorry my father died of pancreatic cancer this year and losing a parent sucks and losing a parent to pancreatic cancer is no picnic either. Um, One book that I return to is actually a book by a former colleague of ours, Megan O'Rourke, who wrote a book called The Long Goodbye uh, after her mother died of cancer that is part memoir and part 
research into the science and psychology of grief. Uh, and I actually read it when my husband's father died and found it really useful in kind of thinking through what he was going through. And I've returned to it in this year of grief for me. Um, but I don't, I have found that I have not turned toward culture. I've turned toward nature. Like the, the, there's something about death that makes you contemplate being alive at the risk of seeming obvious and, I've just found myself wanting to be away from the distraction. Culture has seemed more like distraction than like meaning giver. Um, and just wanting to experience my presence in the world and think about the weird mystery of life <laughs> has been my cultural response to grief. That's my answer. Yeah, that's such a good answer. And coming from someone who is in the midst of experiencing grief, as the listener is sort of on the same timeline, I feel like that's a hard one to follow up. But I, I will mention a couple of pieces of culture that are about grief. I don't know if you know you want the homeopathic remedy of kind of diving into the feeling. But I remember earlier on the show, this may have been early in the pandemic, I'm not sure, but it was a moment when we were talking about culture that gets you through hard times. I think that was a segment we had on the show and a piece of music that I mentioned at that time that is about grief and also in some ways is a, feels like a walkthrough of that experience is uh, The Lesson des Ténèbres, The Lessons of Darkness by Couperin. It's a really, really gorgeous cycle of songs that give expression to anguish that in the writing of it was framed as a kind of religious anguish. I think it's about, you know, the the... The, the darkness is supposed to be the period in between Christ's death and his resurrection, um, but is it is also a traditional piece of music associated, I think, with mourning and funerals. And the particular recording of it that I love, if you want to look for Couperin's Lesson des Ténèbres, is uh, from a group called Les Arts Florissants, and William Christie is the musical director. Uh, the other that I would maybe talk about, and this is a comedy, but it's a comedy about grief that's a wonderful movie. Again, this is a homeopathic remedy, so it's essentially, you know, watching someone grieve if you're up for that, but it's, it's done with such a light touch and is just one of the most romantic movies of all time and that's truly madly deeply which i know steve you're a huge fan of as well this the movie starring alan rickman and juliet stevenson that's essentially about being haunted being haunted by a loved one and you know what it would be like to have their their ghost in your house uh, those are great answers uh, to begin with as you guys said we're just very sorry for your loss my uh, dad died at the beginning of the summer he was 97 and it was not unexpected and uh, he'd lived a very long and very full life. And that's, I think, a different kind of grief. Um, but it's all a reckoning, right? I mean, especially when you have complex re relationships that couldn't in and of themselves resolve themselves with the person that you lose. Because that, that openness stays with you. And so for me, it was kind of thinking that through. I, I echo both of you. I mean, walks in nature were incredible. I mean, it was right at the beginning of the summer that, that we lost them. And it was just incredibly powerful to go on long bike rides, long hikes. Uh, and um, yeah, I mean, it's just some things turned out to be trite only because they're so true. I mean, you're embedded as a physical creature in the rhythms of nature, one of which is your own life cycle and finitude. And I think it's just powerful to have like quasi pagan relationship to nature 
to frame loss like that. And um, I think the other thing I'd say is reading didn't help me or or kind of abstracting or analyzing or, or and I see how it could, but for me, it just didn't. What did help was writing in a way, you know, if due to the circumstances of my, in some ways, incredibly boring normal life that began with an incredibly weird and cosmically ironic thing of, you know, being given up for adoption and, you know, um, just trying to puzzle that out. It's, it's just the kind of irony and openness to all of my experiences is only ever resolved when I try to write something and, and just reckon it. And I found myself writing a lot, diary style stuff and reminiscences and going through in a totally nonlinear way, a lot of the, you know, famous reactions to, you know, uh, someone close to you dying, right? Like anger and, you know, of course, a sense of loss. And I had yeah. that too. Yeah. I found, I found myself, um, yeah, returning to what to me felt like almost a adolescent urge toward observation and like observation of the world. That was the part of, of being in nature that I didn't mention before, but it was, I felt like I kept noticing things and they seemed talismanic or they reminded me of earlier selves or they like, you know, I haven't kept a journal since I was 20 and I didn't really start keeping one this summer, but I kept having these moments, these impulses towards writing things down and putting little scraps of things in notes. And, um, yeah, I, 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 I hear you on the writing part. Yeah. Agreed. It's very powerful. Anyway, just a beautiful question. We're so sorry for your loss. And, you know, thank you for sharing that with us. Okay, before we go any further, typically around now, we discuss business. Dana, you're the business person here. What do you have? <laughs> oh, yeah, you know me. I'm, I'm all about the business. <laughs> when I sit down at the negotiating table, look out. <laughs> Let's make a deal. What do you got? <laughs> Our only item of business this week, Steve, is just to tell people about today's Slate Plus segment, which is just more of what you're already getting, two or three more listener questions, because we are so overflowing with the bounty of questions for this call-in show, we went ahead and put a few of them in our Slate Plus segment. So if you are a member of Slate Plus, you'll get a bonus round at the end of this show. And of course, if you're not a member of Slate Plus, you can always sign up at slate.com slash culture plus. Signing up costs just a dollar for your first month. And for that dollar, you will get ad-free podcasts, bonus content like the Slate Plus segment I just described, and members-only programming in a similar vein on other Slate shows like Slow Burn and the Political Gap Fest. Also, members, of course, will get unlimited access to all of the great writing on Slate.com. I should also mention that when you join Slate Plus, you are supporting our work and the work of all our brilliant colleagues at Slate. These memberships matter a lot to us, so please give us a holiday gift and sign up today at Slate.com slash Culture Plus. Once again, that's Slate.com slash Culture Plus. Okay, Steve, on with the show. This podcast is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Most of you listening to this show right now are probably multitasking in some way or another. You might be driving, cleaning, exercising, maybe grocery shopping. But as long as you're not in some kind of moving vehicle, there's something else you could be doing right now, and that's getting an auto quote from Progressive Insurance. It's easy, and you can save money by doing it right now from your phone. Drivers who save by switching to Progressive save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Discounts for having multiple vehicles on your policy, being a homeowner, and more. So just like your favorite podcast, Progressive will be with you 24-7, 365 days a year. So you're protected no matter what. Multitask right now. 
Quote your car insurance at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Dana, how about um, since some of these came via email or you know non-voicemail channels, uh, why don't you read one that we wanted to address? Sure, I'll give it a read. It goes... Hi, Dana, Julia, and Steve. I'm a longtime listener of the GabFest. My older sister, Catherine, introduced it to me when I was starting high school, and I absolutely love the show. Thank you. I'm in my early 20s, and I'm wondering if you have advice for people in this stage of life. When you think back on your 20s, is there anything you regret doing or not doing? What do you think is the most important thing to keep in mind as I move through my 20s? Oh, yeah, first of all, I'm delighted that there's somebody in their 20s who's been listening since they were in high school. <laughs> that makes say. me feel so good. I'm sometimes afraid that as we become older and older, our audience is aging along with us. And I'm really happy that, well, of course, they're all aging along with us, but I'm happy that we're adding people that are younger as well. Uh, wow. Advice for your 20s. I mean, this could be a whole segment in itself, right? Like if there's one era in your life that you need that kind of advice, it's your 20s, because at least the way that our society is currently structured for the most part, which is that your 20s are the decade where you acquire independence from your family. You know, that's when you really have to start figuring stuff out that you really were not prepared for. And uh, not a lot of the education that you get in adolescence really prepares you for what you actually need to know in your 20s. So Okay, I need to think about that for a minute since I was busy reading that question and you guys were thinking of answers. So, Steve, I'm throwing it to you. Actually, you have a daughter who's just about to enter her 20s. Oh so, God. gear up the advice. <laughs> bite, bite your tongue. She's about to turn 19, so I have a little, you know, lead time here. But, uh, so, well, I'd say, oh, gosh, I don't know. I mean, I kind of I kind of got the, I mean, just my from my own experience, I got the first part of my 20s right and then botched the second part, which I, leads me to my first piece of advice, which is by all means, go to grad school if it if you have an intellectual passion that you want to pursue. But by all means, don't overstay your welcome. Have a sense of purpose when you go connected to life outside or else it becomes a way station, procrastinatory way station. Uh, and... Um, uh, and, um, and get out, get out while the getting's good. Right. Um, I mean, it's cool to really, really learn shit, like to go deep, deep, deep on a subfield of study and take it very seriously and interact with, you know, as kind of junior, junior peers with professors, all of that can be life-changing. It was for me, but it just, I, I, I don't know, just don't, don't make it perma, Perma grad school, perma school. That's just ter- for me. It's just terrible. But um, but but then I'd say more expansively. Look, I, this is really just a a gesture of sympathy to young people today because you know the the you know what you know it used to be that you know you graduate from college, you struggle, you're a little lost, um, you hook on somewhere, and then kind of adult life happens both because of you, but also sort of to you because of just the general drift of life in a, you know, modernist capitalist society or something. And that social contract, I've said it before, it's just been totally broken. I mean, I would say, using a simplistic shorthand, it's been broken by the boomers who just arrogated everything to themselves, leaving nothing for anybody left. It could be neoliberal, you know, plug in your own bogey, but it's just not the same thing, especially, Julia, in the... um, you know, in the liberal artsy knowledge industries like journalism and and being a liberal arts professor, these these are shrinking 
labor pools. And so it's much, much harder. I mean, I guess the one thing I might say, I wonder if you think this is just preposterous, is you kind of have an excuse to have a procrastinatory decade. Just make it productive in other ways as you can while making ends meet. But maybe that's just glib advice from an old. Yeah, I th- my sense is that it's just so much harder to make ends meet that 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 like cushion that allows for procrastinatory figuring out is um you know more like one of those cushions on some kind of public transit that doesn't want you to get too comfy um my answer is travel travel Ooh. travel travel especially if you think you want to have children i was incredibly lucky to find great engagement in my career as soon as I started it to really love what I first did and find happy places to do it. And I, I did not, my twenties were not a time of, of, uh, career and purpose questing, but as a result, I think I worked too hard, like, and, and traveling with your kids can be wonderful too, but there's just types of travel, you know, t- t- trekking, long hiking, like going to places where you're not exactly sure where you're going to sleep that you, I at least don't undertake with children. Um, and what a dummy I was. Why the hell did I like spend weekends editing stories when I could have like gone somewhere? <laughs> like, I don't know. I just like the way, you know, and, and this I think comes back around to the sort of like gee whiz wonder at the mystery of being alive. But we're so lucky to live in a time where you can truly get so many places more easily and economically than you ever could. It's not like a steamer trunk away, you know? Um, So travel, that's my main advice. Wow. So I took one of your advice, one of yours, you guys' advice in my 20s and not the other. <laughs> I did travel constantly, maybe too much. Uh, and basically, you know, I had all my things in boxes on people's porches for years while I sort of bounced from place to place. But I also stayed in grad school way too long, Steve. Although I did eventually finish. So I guess you could say it was worth it. But by the time I finished, you know, I was practically unhirable and the field was practically shut down. So, yeah, I mean, I guess your 20s are your time for not taking advice. And even if I had gotten that advice at the time, I probably wouldn't have been able to hear it. Neither of you have addressed a thing that that would be the advice I would give my own self in my 20s uh, that I don't know if it would apply to this person or to anyone else. But I know I'm pretty sure there are a lot of young women that this applies to anyway. And it would be spend less time focused on men. (laughs) Don't be so boy crazy. I mean, my entire 20s were about anguishing about different relationships that were working or not working or possible or not possible. I'm not saying that those relationships were not important and rich and that I'm not glad that most of them were part of my life, not all. But the amount of focus that I that I had on, um, you know, that form of kind of romantic longing was just way out of proportion to all the other things I had going on in my life and really kept me from, in some ways, I think, appreciating how much grad school was giving me. You know, when I look back on grad school now, the books that I read were absolutely formative and the friends that I made and all the experiences that had nothing to do with romantic partners. But that was not where most of my brain was focused at the time. And that just may be, you know, hormonal and part of life. And that is what people in their 20s think about. But I think some people at the time who urged me to focus less on that and think about other things in my life that were going well, um, they were right, and I should have listened more. Oh, mate, that makes me think of another piece of advice. A, that's great advice. And it's hard, and it's especially hard for 
women, even in your 20s, if you want to have a family and, and want to do it with a partner, it's like, you're like, well, here, here begins the series of datings that will hopefully eventually result in some kind of life partner with whom I can have children, you know, not that men don't think about that too, but the, the clock does tick in a different way, I think. Um, but yeah, this is sort of related to both like romantic escapades and other escapades, like the sooner you can throw embarrassment out the window in life as just like a thing to give a shit about, uh, the better, you know, I think like just realizing that nobody actually cares about you enough to think it was cringy that you tried something and failed at it or, um, you know, lame that you made a pass at someone you were boy crazy for and they didn't go for it. Like just who cares, you know, like the, the, I, I think, so much of figuring yourself out in the world as a teenager is concerned with who you are and who people think you are. And, you know, that, that sense of peer regard becomes important in that second decade after the, after the kind of parents shape you of your early elementary years. Um, so if, if your single digits are your parents shaping you and your teens are your peers shaping you, then I think the twenties are a great decade to, not give a fuck about what anybody thinks about anything that you do and that's the sooner you can get there the better yeah that's a good piece of advice that's another thing that you hear people say a lot and you think you're listening to it when you're younger but <laughs> until you really get older and, and genuinely start not giving a shit you don't really get it i know that is a lifelong you f you think you don't give a shit and then a new decade of your life dawns and you're like, man, I really don't give a, I used to give a shit. I really don't give a shit now. I mean, I, I, I hate to out how, but my age, and by the way, someone called me on it. Like, don't be ageist. It's I'm making fun of myself. I actually hate ageism. It is so ubiquitous in a youth oriented culture, but like, I'm re I'm just really not young anymore. And, and th that is exactly the way that it feels great. You're like, you know, DGAF, man. <laughs> Wait, one last thing, especially for um, the style mavens among our audience. You know, you you are also, it's so fun to look back on pictures of yourself in the your 20s and like all the weird outfits you wore when you were thought you were not attractive, but in fact, you were as young and attractive as you would ever be. So, <laughs> so whatever... Whatever fucking crazy thing you're thinking of wearing, like buy it and wear it. It's just so fun. <laughs> like clothes, clothes remain fun and a great pleasure, but um, but, but enjoy that twenties bod while you have it. That's funny. All right, I think we did that one justice. Let's uh, let's move on. Okay. Well, once again, we have a text-based question. Dana, we read it. Yeah, sure. I liked it. Maybe it's because I read my audiobook the other week. Maybe I've become the official reader out loud. That's fine with me. I love to read out loud. Dear Dana, Julia, and Steve, I've been listening to your show for 10 years, first time writing in. My question is, what is the endorsement or recommendation that one of the other hosts has made that you followed up on and has subsequently embedded itself into your daily life? For my part, Dana once recommended a white noise website called Rainy Cafe. Ah, yes, I love Rainy Cafe. That is my absolute go-to anytime I need to do deep work that requires intense concentration. It has seen me through report writing for jobs at a cancer charity, the Scottish government, and my current role at a children's hospice charity. Wow, doing good work. Thank you, Dana. Finally, thank you for your amazing dedication to the show. It's the oral highlight of my week. What a lovely question. Uh, all right. I know I have a few of these, but since I just read, I will throw it back to one of you. I actually, I think I know a couple of you guys is actually because we've talked about it off off mic before. But Steve, you take it away first. Oh, uh, OK, sure. Well, uh, one just sort of 
you know, screamingly obvious one, though I wouldn't say, I can't think of anything that's embedded itself in my daily life. There's one that's embedded itself in my weekly life and one that embedded itself in my heart, Dana, and you can guess what it is. It's I Capture the Castle by Dodie Smith. It just became one of my favorite books of all time. I cherish it. I've read it now two and a half times, you know, once silently to myself, once out loud to my young daughter, and I got about halfway through it with Kate, and then she, I don't know, became interested in other things, but um, it's so wonderful. It's so, it's just a, oh God, I just rhapsody. It's comfort reading. It's just sweet and dark and wonderful and takes all of what's great about the novel since Jane Eyre and brings it into the 20th century in ways that are believable. It has pockets of darkness that are earned. So the light, light, light parts are earned. It's just such a great book. But uh, and then the other I would say is that actually it wasn't exactly an endorsement. When we very first started doing sh- the show, it's progenitor, Svengali figure, Andy Bowers, uh, said, oh, you should listen to this British show, radio show. It's like a BBC whatever show um, that's been on the radio forever since at least the 1970s. But now it's available as a podcast called Start the Week. And it has this now legendary host, Andrew Marr, who's also a columnist for one of the big papers. He's a TV chat show host, a man for all seasons, like like, like a triple threat kind of guy. And it just, it's such a good show. I listen to it every single Monday. I go for a run. I listen to the fresh start of the week. It almost never disappoints. It's always three or four extraordinarily intelligent guests. Most often they have a nonfiction book coming to market. They all familiarize each other with each other's books. And uh, but it often could be like the director of an opera or or a new you know version of Macbeth or the woman who plays the witch, all three witches in the new Joel Cohen uh, film of uh, Macbeth. Steve, the name of that actress is Catherine Hunter, who plays the three witches, and she is fantastic. Yeah, she was on. I mean, it's just the and they they're thematically linked, and people do seem to take it very seriously. They don't kind of whiff when when they when they chime in about other people's cultural product on it, and. The straw that stirs the whole drink is this just remarkable host named Andrew Marr, and his fill-ins are remarkable because he's so busy now, he's not every week, but Tom Sutcliffe and uh, a couple of other uh, hosts are just they're just tremendously good. Like, I mean, both of those things are are just a part of my framework of reality at this point. That's so amazing. All right. Well, I I spoke about this last year when we did Spotify wrapped as a topic and we did not talk about our 2021 Spotify wrapped. But would anybody on this podcast care to guess who my number one top artist of the year is with more than <laughs> I know. I, I'm one 1,000 1, minutes reached? I'm pretty sure that I know because this is the, this is what I was thinking of when I said I know what one of you is going to say about the other one. Is it Red Garland, the jazz pianist? <laughs> nope, he's number two, Dana. Number two <laughs> goes to Steve. Number one goes to you. Wow, my I have top no idea. Artist was Andrew Rangel. <laughs> I oh was my in the god! Top... <laughs> oh, that makes me so happy. <laughs> Dana recommended his Bach partitas, and they've become my like morning work music ever since. Sorry, sorry, Bach. Sorry, Andrew, for uh, <laughs> you know filing you with email in my musical brain. But um, I'm apparently in the top point oh oh five. Andrew <laughs> Rangel's listeners. I'm his super fan. I spent a total of one thousand and fifty three minutes with him, and just couldn't get enough of Partita Number no. Four in D Major. <laughs> <laughs> BWV eight twenty eight colon Roman numeral six menuet. 
So it's a banger. A that one's jam. a banger. <laughs> but number two, number two is Red Garland. So uh, all of my non-pop musical listing has been completely colonized by uh, recommendations from the two of you with great joy and delight. That is so fantastic. And Julia, as I think I talked about when I first mentioned that recording on the on the podcast, to me, that's the music of thinking as well. I mean, it is, it's like the I like to listen to it when I'm walking and thinking. If I hit some sort of problem in writing or I need to kind of untangle my brain, put that on and take a long, brisk walk. And somehow it's, it's like a brain cleanse. It's really, I, I, I think of that every time I put it on that you, you say that. And to me, it's like, yes, I, I, I don't use it as much for free floating thinking, but it's like a mental alertness balm. Like it, it feels like uh, you take it, what are those drugs people take that help them focus? It feels like oral, um, the ADHD drug that kids oh, yeah. Ritalin, on the back Ritalin. of prep schools. Ritalin, yes, yeah. yes. Which is so reductive. Sorry. Sorry, Buck. Sorry, Andrew. <laughs> but... Anyway, it's it feels it makes me feel like alert and on it. Okay, and, and I'll answer mine really quick. Mine was going to be Red Garland as well, Steve, who I listen to all the time. I'm not mm. sure I'm in the in the top Spotify listeners of Red Garland, but he's completely in the rotation. And I had never listened to him before. You mentioned him, and we've talked before about jazz piano and how we both love solo jazz piano. In fact, I endorsed a Bill Evans recording or series of recordings just last week. So Red Garland is somebody that you have given me, and thank you very much for that. And Julia, I hope you won't think that you won't take it amiss that both of the cultural things that I've adapted into my daily life from you are recipes. You have really great <laughs> recipe recommendations on the show. And the two in particular that I thought of were the blueberry muffin recipe, which you have to remind me where people can find it. I just know it now. But um, but where was that fantastic blueberry muffin recipe originally printed that you recommended once? I think it's a Cook's Illustrated one, but there are multiple Cook's Illustrated ones. And I've also since changed to a Smitten Kitchen interpretation of a Cook's Illustrated recipe, I think. So I don't even know if we're still on the same one. But yes. Oh my god. Okay, okay. we've got to post them both to our show page. Maybe we can do a blueberry muffin bake off and see which one is better. I'll, but those I'll are the them. perfect ones. And then there was a there was a lemonade recipe. This was early in the pandemic. There was a recipe for something called State Fair Lemonade where you throw the whole lemon oh, yes. in including the zest into a blender and you make this great kind of icy lemon slush. I made that a bunch over the summer and it's kind of my new thing now. It's just like throw the peel into with oranges or lemons or anything. Just put the peel in as well and it'll add this great zesty bitterness to the citrus. That stuff is so delicious. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Okay, let's uh, let's uh, take another question. Hello, Culture Gap Best Friends. This is Rachel Bastio from Middletown, Connecticut. I'm curious to know how each of you feel about a particular phrase that really irritates me. I began hearing this sometime in the late aughts, I think. I'm referring to the phrase, we are pregnant, when it is spoken by men as a way of noting their impending fatherhood. Of course, I recognize and appreciate the intended gesture toward egalitarianism, but the truth is that pregnancy is a specific biological event. In the recent Supreme Court debates about Roe, I was reminded about the urgency of this as I listened to Justice Barrett conflate pregnancy and parenthood in her justifications for limiting abortion rights. I am willing to grant men who say, we are pregnant, every good intention, 
but I also think this lazy expression negates an essentialism, that childbearing is a burden and it is endured by women. Signing off in gratitude, happy holidays, happy new year, many, many blessings to each of you and to your families. All right. So, Julia, who should start here? You know, you who've recently been pregnant or me who might well use a smug, lazy, back patting phrase in order yeah. to virtue signal. <laughs> Steve, have you, have you plural ever been pregnant? <laughs> I, I have never, ever, ever been pregnant. Never. And I really, I think, searching my heart, I can honestly say I never, ever said were pregnant. I mean, you could say we're having a kid, maybe. I don't know. I mean, that's not even that kind of... I mean, listen, I have no way I would ever use that phrase for all of the reasons that wonderfully like articulate uh, voicemail uh, indicates. <laughs> no, no freaking way. Dana, you were sort of affronted by this idea too, right? Yeah, I mean, well, I was just trying to imagine a world in which my partner would ever say that. It would never happen, and there would be a serious glance across the table. <laughs> shock glance. If it did. It'd be a steak I mean, knife across the table. <laughs> but it's, it's not even, to me, it's just sort of impossible to imagine that kind of appropriative language. It's just a weird thing to say. I mean, I suppose if I heard someone else say, what I would say it, I would think, well, to each their own. But, <laughs> but I would definitely not want to be reproducing with somebody who, who used that expression. I mean, I guess as the listener says, it is some sort of gesture towards egalitarianism, but it feels so appropriative and so essentialist and just like a very weird thing to say that it creates anxiety when I imagine it. Julia, I understand, even though you're the one who is the closest to having been pregnant recently among us, that you didn't feel that offended by the expression. I mean, to be clear, my partner has not ever said this. And uh, if he did, I would think it was like dorky. But I don't think it is like I. Th I think to, to the degree that it is politically problematic, I would like rather have more male partners or non-birth partners err in the direction of shared responsibility for the child with the pregnant person than the opposite. Mm -hmm. Like to to me, the things that I found most offensive. Like I remember getting a book that someone gave me. Um, that the whole first chapter was like, see if you can get your hubby to come with you to the to the pregnancy appointments. Like, male partners need like just assumed a level of like dipshit, Papa Berenstein like idiocy <laughs> about the whole thing. That well, I was, and like, also so... assumes heterosexuality, right? Assumes that you're not a single parent. I hated that language in those kind of books. Yeah, assume, it was so assumes universal. Partner, assumes a male partner and then assumes that that male partner is a fucking shithead. And like my partner who is male is wonderful and like better at kids than me. And and like just I just felt so affronted on his behalf. So I, I would say I feel more politically affronted by the assumption that non-birth partners are not involved then the uh, you know if some per if it like really you know gives someone pleasure to say we're pregnant and so long as their birth partner is down for it and doesn't feel like their physical labor and pain is being appropriated like fine say that like i don't want to be married to you but more <laughs> on like aesthetic squickiness grounds than political revulsion grounds 
Yeah, I kind of agree. I mean, and, and it really points to the larger question that you just pointed out, which is that so much of the language aimed at women specifically, but surrounding, you know, pregnancy, childbirth, early parenting is so infantilizing and condescending and embarrassing. It's just it's an embarrassing time to be a reader <laughs> because you're constantly having to block out those kind of assumptions that every text seems to be making. And something I remember laughing about a lot in the early days of having a baby was that all of that literature and also sort of all the pamphlets you get at the hospital or the way a pediatrician will talk to you, not ours, thank God, he was great, but is has this thing of saying baby while leaving out the definite article of the baby. <laughs> so over and over and again, it'll be pick baby up out of the crib, give baby a bottle. Like what happened to the? Why is it that when you are an infant human being, you oh, don't have a terrible. definite article in front of your name? It sounds like Silence of the Lambs, right? Like it puts the lotion in the basket. Like it's so weirdly not human. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's bump along to the next question. Uh, what do we got? Hey, Slate Coulter Gabfest. I'm just interested in hearing from Julia after her uh, maternity leave what topic she would have loved to have discussed if she was um, still around during that time. And uh, would especially love to hear of any points uh, that you maybe disagree with Stephen and Dana while you were gone. Thanks so much. Uh, well, as I have admitted, I didn't listen to like a minute of the show while I was out, but I was still lurking on our um, group email address, which is where all of your questions and emails come. And I would sort of see those emails go by as I was bopping online to do whatever. Um, and there was just a profusion of response when you guys talked about ebooks um, from all kinds of people saying like ebooks are so important to me. Um, ebooks are life changing if you have different kinds of, of disabilities. Uh, ebooks are great. You guys sound uh, like a bunch of luddites, and I was like, a bunch of luddites. Oh no, Julia Turner was needed on the Culture Gap Fest. Robot um, to the rescue. <laughs> Um, but so anyway, that was, that was the one set of email where I was like, oh my God, come on, ebooks are the best. I should have been on that, on that segment. Um, but then I went back and listened to it last night in preparation for this. Um, and you guys were actually much more tempered and measured than the outraged email made it sound because you were all quite clear to, um, emphasize that you were describing your own experiences rather than suggesting universally that they're bad or have no value. And in fact, all of you discussed the specific values they have in your lives. However, you did all seem to accord a kind of talismanic potency to the paper book over the electronic book. So the one thing I can contribute is just not that. Like, I'm happy to read and I, li I, I like to read on a Kindle before bed. I find it more comfortable. You can get anyone as soon as you finish a book. You can click up a new one. Um, love ebooks. You know, I also like paper books, but I honestly like them more as a. I think they're like a great objects to have in your home. Sometimes I read them. Sometimes I don't. For whatever reason, I read the Sally Rooney, um, "Beautiful World, Where Are You," just as a paper book. I also do often switch back and forth between paper and ebook sometimes like I, I, I whichever of you proposed a premium edition where you get the paper book and the attendant ebook and audiobook like that is what I would like actually oh, I would completely. like completely I want that so bad would, why is that option not being offered already 
Well, and actually, one other thing you guys didn't mention is that if you like to switch between reading and audiobooks, you can do that with Kindle. There's like this whisper sync technology where when you listen, then when you open your Kindle, it goes to the page that where you left off listening. And that saves a lot of like, where was I time? So anyway, uh, total agnostic, like both, do not ascribe talismanic power to the print text, although I recognize they are lovely objects. I have one thing to say about that, which is that I somewhat regret how I framed that that segment, because I think it did sort of come across as books are better and here's why. And in fact, we were responding to a specific article that was about what about the design of ebooks has kept them from catching on the way that they should. And this person was sort of trying to puzzle out why is it that only 11% of the book sales market is still represented by ebooks? Why have they not taken over the world? And there were some sort of design issues, which I completely agreed with, that are the specific reasons that I have not enjoyed reading ebooks. So outside of bringing in, you know, talismanic odes to the codex and everything else that we did in that segment, I was trying to think specifically about why is it that ebooks have never been become a tactile object that that I and I think many other people want to engage with. So it was not intended, and this may have been an oversight on my part, to begin by saying, if you like ebooks, you're wrong. And I think a lot of people heard it that way. Yeah, although I will say there were a number of your descriptions of like, oh, the location versus pages and the time remaining in book. And all of those are adjustable settings in the Kindle where you can make them what you want. So that's the, 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 the I think the design has gotten like more adaptable and less set in stone. Noted. And I read um, them so little that I wouldn't even be aware of those advantages, you know, as they come. Back in the 90s, Pepsi and Coca-Cola were in a heated race to try and win loyal customers by any means necessary. But when Pepsi launched an ambitious promotion that encouraged people to buy Pepsi and redeem points for prizes, they overlooked their own fine print in a major way. On each episode of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop, comedians join host Misha Brown to chronicle one of the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? Like, who at Pepsi thought it would be a good idea to advertise that people could earn enough points to redeem a military jet as a prize? When they launched their Pepsi point system, they never imagined somebody might try to actually snag it, but a 23-year-old did, and suddenly, Pepsi owed him a jet. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right, let's play the next one. Hi, my name is Rachel and I live in Atlanta, Georgia, and I've been listening to the GapFest since 2009, I think. <laughs> um, uh, I, my question is this. Um, you've discussed fashion on the show many, many times. And my question is about hair. What is your relationship to your hair? What's the wildest thing you've done with your hair? What's something you wish you could do with your hair? I'm really curious to know, um, to know about it. Thanks. My biggest hair tale is that I was a blonde until I was 20. And then after a breakup that was rapidly followed by 9-11, I 
chopped my hair into a chin length bob and dyed it dark brown and then it just stayed brown ever after. <laughs> um, but I think I'm psychically a brunette. So that's my, my hair psyche. And when I was still blonde, I dyed my hair navy blue in high school and it looked great and kind of like Wonder Woman for like three days. And then it sort of looked like dishwater for a while. I, there was a blue haired Julia Turner. There was both a blonde and a blue-haired Julia Turner before there was the brunette Julia Turner, you know. I love the idea that grief turned your hair brunette. It's like those stories of people going gray overnight, but you went brunette overnight. I mean, it was like, like I no one recognized me at work when I came in with dark hair and, and like this chopped bob, like a bunch of people double take. That was definitely the most dramatic thing I ever did with my hair. The bob and brunette was more dramatic than the manic panic, which was pretty common occurrence among my set in high school so nobody really blinked when my hair turned blue but um what shade of blonde was it when it was blonde you know like normal blonde kids sort of totally toe-headed till I was eight then kind of a little bit like sandier for another eight years I also lifeguarded a lot from like 15 to 20 so I think every year every summer I'd get a new batch of kind of highlights that obscured how brown it was becoming underneath and then when I finally dyed it brown in my early 20s then stopped lifeguarding it just stayed stayed brown dana what you must have some interesting hair history. <laughs> i don't know about interesting i can tell you what i tell my hairdresser whenever i get a new one is sort of my my hair backstory which is that i just feel like i've never been a hair person you know when you're a young woman reading all of these kind of victorian novels or anne of green gables or things like that there's a lot about hair and the cutting off of hair and the selling of hair and the O. Henry story. And, you know, it's like a woman's crowning glory is her hair. I was never that person. I was always the person with very thin, very fine, very straight. Just the way I used to describe it when I was down on myself as a teenager is I look like a potato with two strings tacked to it. (laughs) Just very (laughs) little hair. And so I've never been able to be that person who on the rare occasions that it was long, I usually wear it short because of this, you know, problem. But I was never that person who was able to, you know, do fancy ponytails and braids and buns or whatever, because there just wasn't enough of it. And I have this very clear memory. I think it was high school, maybe it was college of sitting behind a woman, a young girl in class who had this, you know, just perfect hair, just sort of thick, you know, sandy colored kind of dirty blonde, but just mainly just that it was this shiny, thick mass, you know, and that she just casually twisted it up in the back into a perfect Mm. little donut and stuck her pencil through it and it stayed. And it was just this raging jealousy (laughs) that that would never, ever happen to me. The pencil would just immediately clatter to the floor. (laughs) So... So whenever I go to a hairdresser, my whole thing is just like, make me look like a person who actually has hair of some kind. <laughs> give it some volume. <laughs> give it some body. I'm so jealous of people with curls, of, you know, braids, of anyone who can do, whose hair has a kind of a sculptural quality, you know. And it is actually worth noting that many, many, many of the men that I've been attracted to in my life and the person that I'm now spending my life with have important hair, (laughs) you know, like big, (laughs) dense, curly, interesting hair that you can do things with because that's so fascinating to me. And I love poodles as well. I love curly haired dogs. If you've got curly hair, if any species, I want you around. Steve, I mean, you you have important hair. You're, or at least you still have a lot of hair. It seems like from here. <laughs> do you? Do what? I'm curious to hear you talk about the your relationship to like baldness. Baldness just seems like such a big thing for men. And uh, anyway, discuss. 
I mean, I, I include baldness within the rather large category of the suffering of others, you know, that I, because it hasn't yet afflicted me, have no real consciousness of. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I've always had, I've always had a pretty good head of hair, like, and uh, I, you know, it's like, believe me, it's going, it's going to go. It's, 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 but, um, but what what I would say is that, is that I had the most perverse self-sabotaging streak as a young person, as an adolescent and an early adult. And I used to walk into just the cheapest barber shop, and I would say, you know, I just, just want a haircut. And they would say, well, what do you want? I said, just like, I said, don't even style it at all. Like, I don't even want it to look like a haircut. And they they called my bluff, right? They gave me these like blob non-haircut haircuts. And I just had this bizarre, like it was almost like having a mood ring on your head or something, or it just took whatever shape it was going to take on any given day to the point where I looked often like an entirely different person day to day um, because the, the, the sort of amoebic mass on the top of my head Reshape, had reshaped it itself. I was just per- perma bedhead kid. In some sense, and it finally dawned on me that this was not enhancing my life chances in any regard, you know, much less on the dating market. And so I then overcompensated. And um, I'll never forget there was this, you know, I, I was, uh, I started out in grad school as an MA student at University of Virginia. And there were these kind of, there was this, there was a lot of like, overlap like you hung out a lot with the mfa students you hung out uh, uh, hung out a lot with the undergrads like there weren't these brightly drawn lines somehow it was it was fun it was really cool and there were these fiction writers these two guys who were from the deep south and kind of gave off a like fuck it vibe like we're not part of this institution but this is the only way to become a fiction writer these days so we'll do it they were kind of like manly men you know and um i just remember being introduced to one of them someone said oh do you know steve and he goes nope but Noah's haircut. And it was because I just had the dipshittiest haircut. Like I had gone so far in the other direction. And I, I think I probably hadn't specified this, but I sort of asked just to have a haircut. And like, I don't know, just the haze or undermine me. The person gave me one of those buzz shelves, you know, where you kind of buzz up. This is a 90s thing, I think, like an early 90s thing. You kind of buzz up the back and then you stop and there's like a, it's almost like a freaking hedgerow midway up the nape of your neck and then it kind of it was just it was just the most ghastly fucking haircut and after that <laughs> after that comment that comment just stung me so fucking deeply right and and i uh th- i achieved hegelian synthesis and like the non-haircut and the overcut or overthought haircut synthesized together and since then i've gone in the direction of you know, the actually quite meticulous haircut that doesn't really look that much like a haircut. Thank you. Good night. <laughs> okay. Uh, how about one more? And let's, so uh, we have it on audio. So let's listen. Hi, Slate Culture Gabfest. My name is Wilson I'm from Providence, Rhode Island. I'm a longtime listener and fan. And um, my work, I work as a hospice chaplain. And it's really important to me that we begin normalizing conversations about end of life and what's important to us and what matters to us. And um, a question I like to use to start that conversation with people in my life that I'd like to ask the three of you is, um, if you had to pick one song to be played at your memorial service or your celebration of life, what would it be and why? Thanks so much. Bye-bye. 
Okay, that's a great question. Julia, what do you think? I have two answers in opposite directions. So I was a very poor and frustrated piano student as a as a young woman. My grandmother was an amazing pianist, and we had a lovely piano that she gave us, and I just struggled and wrestled. But uh, one of our favorite records growing up in my house was a recording of Mendelssohn's songs without words, and we listened to them all the time. And I and I know, you know, many of them I can hum along to note for note. Um, and so I got the sheet music for a bunch of them. And for whatever reason, probably because it was the least difficult to play because of its somber pacing, <laughs> you know, the rest of them had all these arpeggios and complicated little tonal shifts that I couldn't figure out how to do. The one that I made any headway in learning to play was um, a, f- a funeral march that is one of Mendelssohn's songs without words. So it would seem only appropriate that that be played. That is also very tonally apt for a funeral. And I will say that my husband and I, when I when we got married, had a rock and roll recessional, and it was really fun and kind of triumphant feeling. Um, and so maybe you also need a, a rock and roll recessional in your funeral. And I have endorsed on this show, and will endorse again, the song Me and You and Jackie Matu, which is a recent song by Superchunk as they... Uh, age like the rest of us um, and and the opening couplet of it is uh, I hate music what is it worth can't bring anyone back to this earth uh, and yet the tone is just like triumphant blare it out your window summer strut style rock music It's beautiful. So those are my two. Oh, man. Good answer. Uh, Dana, what about you? <laughs> well, this this fell right into my wheelhouse because I have an actual Spotify playlist that's existed for at least three or four years called Funeral Playlist. <laughs> and it's supposed to be the songs played at my funeral. Or it's more sort of like, you Wait, know. Wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's somewhat of a joke, but the title basically comes from like, these are the ones that I'm going down with the ship on these songs, right? Or these these pieces of music. And it is all part of this kind of ongoing goofy fantasy I have that my funeral would be this really fun weekend long celebration that would include a film festival and dance parties. <laughs> Sort of like a wedding, right? Like how a wedding is this series of celebrations, but it would all just sort of... Can we just do this when you turn whatever your next round number is (laughs) and you get to enjoy it too? Yeah, but let me continue to have the fantasy that everybody is going to want to congregate and have some sort of a mass like Burning Man style celebration after my death. We can do both. We'll do we'll do one while I'm alive. <laughs> okay. But you have you have to let me go to my grave knowing that it's going to happen again. So actually, some of the things on my funeral playlist are dance songs, are things that are meant to get people out on the dance floor. But it really is just kind of a name for songs that I love so much that I want them associated with my name forever <laughs> in perpetuity. So I, I just opened it in Spotify while we were talking. And if you want, I can read you a few titles from it at random there's probably about 20 songs on it now and when I basically when I hear something really great or hear a song that I remember oh yeah that's a song I can't live without I'll drag it over to this list so a couple things on this list it starts off with some soul I guess I was probably listening to a soul playlist and just was dragging some of my favorites but Express Yourself by Charles Wright Express Yourself 
Just a classic and a beautiful, happy song that always gets people out on the dance floor. My karaoke go-to that I think you have even seen me sing in karaoke before, the two of you, Midnight Train to Georgia by Gladys Knight and the Pips. Let's Stay Together by Al Green is on there. Um, Then we move into classical music, and I have a Couperin piece that I think I've also recommended on the show, the Second Livre des Pièces de Claverin. I have a Brazilian song, of course, Desafinado, the Bossa Nova classic by João Gilberto. And Steve, I know this will make you happy because you like to make fun of my taste for international (laughs) classical music, but I have an Indian song. I don't know if it's a raga piece. It's played by Nikhil Banerjee, one of my favorite sitar players who I've endorsed before on the show. This particular one, I mean, it could be almost anything by him because it's all incredible music. This particular one is called Chandra Kaush Alap. I hope I'm saying that. Something close to right. Anyway, it goes on and on, but the idea is, it's fun to start a funeral playlist. The idea is that it's just sort of faves that I would love people to remember and discover because of me. It's like endorsements. It's like posthumous endorsements. Oh, man, I love it. Okay, well, I'll lightning through my posthumous endor- endorsements. I, it, it sort of had, it demanded a little bit of a list. So I would say uh, Nina Simone's cover of Who Knows Where the Time Goes. Who knows where the time it's just so exquisitely heartbreaking uh my head is my only house the captain beefart cover by everything but the girl myself when i am real by mingus mingus at the piano is this just if probably my desert island disc i i just it's just such deep deep moods by someone who's not naturally a pianist but is very much naturally a composer uh, at the piano and uh, Catalan Kane if you don't know it the song by the go-betweens that's just a kind of deep mood about childhood and um, it's just such a great song I recall a schoolboy coming home through fields of cane to a house of tin timber and in the sky a rain of falling cinders Those are the ones that I came up with. We should make a playlist of all of ours together. Yeah, let's make a funeral Gabfest playlist. I would love that. I'll send in some songs for it. I just am still reeling from the idea that Dana is planning an amazing party for her funeral. (laughs) I'm just... I love it. Let's say it's at the it's at the stages of just like ridiculous fantasies about how you know how much everybody's going to miss me and how very happy they'll be to be dancing on a dance floor at my funeral. But it's progressed no further than that. All right, there is a list of movies for the film festival, but that's for another segment. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, uh, let's wrap it there. The regular show there. Every year, this is really one of the fun ones. We, we used to do them. Didn't we used to do them hungover at the slate, annual slate retreat, right? Now we just do them kind of holiday hungover or something. There's just kind of a woozy, oozy hungover vibe to them that, that I don't know. I love the show. 
All right. Thank you, Julia. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Dana. Thanks so much, Steve. It was fun. Yeah, really fun. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Uh, as you can hear from the voices of many voices that you heard today, we just have wonderful listeners. The emails are great. We love hearing from you. Shoot us one. We do really appreciate it. Um, our introductory music is by Nicholas Bertel. Our production assistant is Nadira Goff. Our producer is Cameron Drews for Dana Stevens and Julia Turner. I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us, and we will see you soon. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.